Well, for students of Charles Spurgeon's Pastors College, which was around in the late 1800s, the Friday meetings of that college with Dr. Spurgeon were often a time of joy. Spurgeon was more laid back, and it was more of a time of talking about the joys of ministry. But on one occasion, the meeting was marked not with joy, but with solemn heartache. Word had reached Mr. Spurgeon that a minister in whom he had placed great confidence from the college had fallen greatly. The students knew that Spurgeon always took matters of personal purity very seriously. And now, having heard the news, he stood before his students, rolling up his coat sleeve and placing his bare wrist on the platform rail. He said in a solemn and awful tone, Brethren, I would sooner have had this right hand severed from my body than that this should happen. See, Spurgeon knew that the fall of a minister brought great shame to the church and to the name of Jesus Christ. He would rather have been maimed than to see such spiritual harm brought upon God's people. So, even as he devoted himself to training pastors, Spurgeon urged his students again and again in one central thing. Fight to be men worthy of leading the flock of God. Fight to be men worthy of leading the flock of God. Well, friends, I wonder how you hold leadership in your mind and in your heart today. Do you hold it in high regard, especially in the life of the local church? But not just church leadership. How do you view leadership in the home or in the workplace or even in the state, in the government around us? Whether we realize it or not, and I think many of us do realize it, leadership has fallen on hard times. And the main reason is because, well, it's the reason that leadership has always really been fallen on hard times because we don't like to be led. We don't like to be led. It's a side effect of sin. It's a side effect of brokenness. We don't like to be told what to do. This is nothing new. In fact, as we come back to the book of Hebrews this morning, we find that the early Christians needed help following God as well when it came to Christian leadership. Last week we began the, the last portion of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, this last chapter that's really filled with, with something new in the book. Thus far he's given these exhortations about the glories of Christ and how we shall follow Christ and look to Christ and trust in Jesus because he is the fulfillment of all that's been said before in our Bibles. But here in this last chapter he's now turned to give them some practical exhortations, some practical commands, if you will. And that's really what they are. He calls them, in light of who Jesus is, toward obedience. Now, I mentioned this last week, but we, we need commands, and I, and I hope you don't hate and spurn the, the commands of God in His Word, because they show that we have a great need in our hearts. If we were given to obedience in our lives, well, God wouldn't have put it in His Word. But the very reason that they're here shows us our need shows us of our struggle to walk in holiness. These commands are like a resetting of the bones. And so we come today to several commands that particularly surround church leaders, particularly surrounding what we commonly call elders or pastors or overseers. And I'll highlight each of those names in the sermon today, each of those titles and roles and what they represent. But if you have a Bible, let me invite you to go ahead and turn with me again then to Hebrews 13. To Hebrews 13. We're going to be jumping a little bit in the book here today. We're going to do something that, that's not normal or common uh, for us. Normally we go kind of verse by verse, but today we're actually going to be jumping into two different sections in the book of Hebrews, or chapter 13 of Hebrews, because they both deal with the same topic, the same subject, the same theme. And so I'm going to read them for us here in just a moment, but we're going to be looking at Hebrews 13, 7, and then 17 through 19. 
And if you don't have a Bible, you can always use the Pew Bible there in front of you, and that's found on page 949 in that Bible. If you're new to the Bible, just turn to page 949 and look for the big number 13. And the small number 7 is where I'll begin reading here in a moment. Well, friends, let me do invite you to stand with me once more out of the honor of reading God's Word. This is God's Word, sufficient, inerrant, and holy, given to us today from Hebrews 13, 7, and then 17 through 19. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Then jumping down to verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord to us today. Praise be to God. You may be seated. What I want us to see today is really three things that jump out from this passage. And you have them there in your bulletin if you want to jot these down in your own journal or you can follow along there. But I want us to see three things, really three F's. The faith of godly authority, the function of godly authority, and the fountain of godly authority. So the faith, the function, and the fount of godly authority. And really, as we look at these three things, I have two prayers for us this morning. This, like I said, this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of sermon to some degree. It's, it's going to be more topical or, or more practical, if you will. And so I really have two prayers. The first one for us in general is that God would give us tender and submissive hearts, not finally to the men who, who rule as elders in this church, but to God. That we would have kind and submissive hearts to Him and His kind and wise and perfect Word so that our lives would be full of the abiding joy that's held out in this passage. But my second prayer for us, and for this sermon in particular, is that this sermon would serve as a sort of template. I, in fact, desire that, that this sermon would be a sermon that our church and those who come in the days after us that this sermon would be one that is returned to regularly as a template for what our expectations should be as a church of our elders and what we should look to as God brings new gifts of pastors and elders to our church and what those of us who are currently serving in these roles should be held to and held accountable to. And so kind of have two prayers there. And so that in light of that, as I said, this is going to be a more practical sermon. There are really five groups that I want to address this morning. Five different groups. The first one is the pastors and their families. Now, I realize one of our pastors and their families are sick this morning, so we'll trust that Pastor Sean and his family will listen to this sermon later. But... To me and my family and to David and his family, I, I, I specifically want to direct this sermon as a call to arms. I also intend for this sermon to be directed to the church member who desires to honor God. And our prayer as elders is that all of you would be church members who want to honor God. So I'm going to assume that's all of us. Next, I desire that this sermon would be addressed to men who desire to be in godly leadership, both in their homes and within the church. 1 Timothy 3 tells us that the desire to be an overseer is a noble desire. And then, finally, to non-Christians, who really wrestle with the question of, is Christianity actually all about control? This is something that many of you who aren't Christians wrestle with. Is Christianity really a religion that's all about controlling people? and manipulating people and deceiving and directing people and getting them to do what these men who call themselves pastors want them to do. So those are kind of some groups that I wanted to address this morning. Let's get into it then. Point one, the faith of godly authority. You look back there at verse 7 of Hebrews 13. It says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. 
Now, the first thing we need to deal with is this word leaders. You notice here that the author of Hebrews, the preacher of Hebrews, does not use the word pastor, does not use the word elder, does not use the word overseer, or any of the other offices that are mentioned throughout the Bible. In fact, he uses a very general word here, leaders. It is those who exercise some amount of authority. Authority that's given to them by God. We are reminded then that it is God who gives authority. That authority is God's to begin with. That as the creator of everyone and everything, he is the authority. He is the one who is ruling from on high. And it is him through his very word that then gives that authority. This may be news to some of you, but I stand up here in no authority of my own. I have no reason or no merit to stand before you other than what is given to me by the very word of God. That is why our sermons here are not Pastor Adam philosophizing and chatting on about whatever he desires. And so we see then in God's gift of authority that there are expectations and responsibilities we are told throughout the Bible that there are different spheres of authority. There are different avenues of authority. We have authority in our homes. We have authority in our churches. And we have authority in the state. There are these three spheres that are really laid out throughout Scripture. But it seems here that Hebrews is directly talking about authority within the local church, within the Christian community. How do we know this? Well, the phrase in which he uses to describe the leaders. Remember your leaders, specifically those who spoke to you the word of God. This is highlighting a specific kind of leader. Those who deliver God's word, those who instruct in God's word, those who preach and teach God's word, primarily those who exercise authority within the church. And each of the commands, then, we'll see, are given to the local church, to this community that has placed its faith in Jesus. And the reality of the following is that we come to see that we follow what we love. I mentioned this last week, but it's more pointed here, that we're willing to follow that which we love. And so the first command, the first two commands here, are to look to those who are living in authority over you. You see there are two commands there then. First, verse 7, at the beginning of verse 7, remember. And then at the end of verse 7, imitate. Those are the two verbs of command in this passage, in this sentence. So let's think about what these two mean. First, remember. It means to bring to mind at a later time, to recall. Now we do this practically, don't we? We remember our pastors, our leaders, our elders uh, practically. We're to think about them in our own care of them. This is what Paul gets at in 1 Timothy 5. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. There's that word consider. Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For Scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. So it's a practical way we are to remember our elders. But this is not the way he's talking about here. No, he's talking about a more spiritual remembering, if you will. We are to remember them in a help to our own lives. We are to remember who they are and what they are about so that our own lives may be edified and built up. And so we see the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The aim of this verse then is that the church would remember them for their holiness, for their way of life, it says there in verse 7, to consider the way that their life comes out. This is the great root then of that second command, to imitate, to imitate, or, or to live in the same manner as, to take up the same aim, in a phrase, to follow after them. If Paul in, in Corinthians and Philippians and Thessalonians does the exact same thing when he calls the people to imitate him as he imitates Christ. He told Timothy to set an example for the Ephesians in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. He instructed Titus to be a model of good works. And he made a special list of elder qualifications that start with the call to be above reproach. 
And so we see throughout the New Testament that there is a pattern, a constant call upon the Christian to look to those who have been put in leadership over them as an example to follow. And there are several aspects noted throughout the New Testament that help us understand who this is and what exactly should be remembered and imitated. As I mentioned a moment ago here in verse 7, those who spoke the word of God denotes their wisdom, their, their faith. This denotes that spirituality, their, their hope and their devotion that, that we would imitate their faith and then the outcome of their way of life. Well, this denotes their holiness and care. So I want to talk about these, and I want to put them into three categories, if you will. These are really, you could say in some sense, three expectations that you should have for your pastors. Three things. Holiness, wisdom, and care. And each of these highlights the three titles that are given to this leader in the New Testament. In holiness, an elder, someone who is spiritually mature. In wisdom, someone who is an overseer and can direct and guide and care. Someone who is a pastor, a shepherd, who walks alongside of. So let's think about these three. And I, I, we're really going to spend a lot of time here. The most important thing that a pastor can do is pursue personal holiness. This is the most important thing a pastor can do. This is what Hebrews 12, 14 highlights. That, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so the most important thing a pastor can do, first and foremost, is to pursue holiness, their own personal walk with the Lord, their closeness to Him. They're becoming like Him. Holiness here simply means agreeing with the mind of God as it is laid out in Scripture. Holiness simply means working to turn away from every sin and to obey every command of God. And so Robert Murray McShane, the famous 19th century Scottish pastor was right when he said, the greatest need of my people is my own holiness. Why is this so important? Well, friends, it's because Christians don't simply learn how to be holy by reading the Bible. We can learn a lot about holiness from reading the Bible. But there's also a call here upon the pastors to be example to, 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 to set forth as mature Christians. What does it look like to walk in holiness? And so pastors should be at the head of the pack of the mature Christians in a local church, especially Christian men. Hear this, that your pastors should be men that you hold in high regard. This is because faith is more than knowledge. Faith is, is a life that's lived in light of God's Word. And so the expectation of pastors is that they're living such a life of holiness. And what does this mean for us then as pastors? That our battle against sin is lost when we think that we are a separate class or somehow protected from the spiritual warfare that the rest of you face. This means, first and foremost, we must see ourselves as Christians who must endure to the end. This is why recently in, in, in my free time, I've grown in a greater conviction of this, that, that I should not waste my free time reading frivolous things. But, and my wife's tired of hearing me talk about this, but I need to be doing my devotional reading. And I've started just personally in my own free time reading books that help edify and grow my own soul in loving Jesus. It's simple. That's simple. I'm not reading some big philosophy book or some systematic theology book. I don't need to understand all of the arguments for this thing or that thing. I need to love Jesus more. I need to trust Jesus more. I need to look more and more like Jesus more and more. I need more of Jesus. The New Testament ex expectation then is that elders will be so known for their holiness that 1 Timothy 5 seems to lay out that it would be ridiculous to accept an allegation against them unless there are multiple accusers. And so again, Robert Murray McShane says, a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. This is the first thing you should be able to note about your pastors. And so noting should seek to grow in yourself. To note how these men agree with God over self. How we desire to agree with God over the world. 
How we desire to agree with God over what current culture says or what the church growth movement says or what's popular or what's on the radio or what's the best-selling book. And so we desire to be men who are not perfect but of deep repentance in our imperfection. We desire to be men who deeply trust in God and closely walk with Him And we want that to spur you on in your pursuit of the same. But next, pastors should be full of wisdom as overseers to guide the congregation, to oversee the happenings of the life of the church. We need great wisdom. Wisdom, it doesn't just mean we're smart guys. No, it it means that, that we see knowledge applied. And I think there's a great definition of wisdom is knowledge with feet on it. It's not just knowing the right thing, but knowing how to then enact that right thing. I've said this many times, that wisdom is is being able to see around the bend, to be able to see what decisions and what choices, where they're going to lead before you get there. Understanding God's Word and, and God's people so that we can rightly apply the balm of the Gospel. So what are some areas we should expect our pastors to be wise in? especially for those of you who desire to serve as pastors and elders, whether that's on staff or or as lay elders, here's a great list of things if you're looking for something that you need to focus on. Here it is. What do we need wisdom in? First, in the authority and sufficiency of God's Word. Understand what God's Word is and that it is sufficient for everything dealing with our faith and our life. Next, understanding God's sovereignty throughout history. That He is a God who has moved and worked and acted sovereignly and with power and with glory and majesty. So understanding His works throughout redemptive history. Next, understanding the very glory of Christ Himself as the God-man. Understanding who Jesus is, what Jesus is about, what He came to do, and what He will come again to do. And this centers on something that I don't think as pastors we can give ourselves enough to And that is the work of the atonement itself. That what did Christ accomplish in his death? Friends, there there is a reason that the phrase gospel-centered so-and-so has become so popular in church culture. You'll hear this with everything. We want gospel-centered preaching. We want gospel-centered children's ministry. We want gospel-centered music. We want gospel-centered Bible studies. We want gospel-centered potlucks. I haven't figured out what those are yet. Still working on it. But the reason that is such a cliche in the culture today is because it's true that everything that we do must be shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ, what he came and did. This is why Paul says, I chose to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. So in our counseling, in our discipling, in our preaching, in our visitation, in our weddings, in our funerals, everything that the pastor does must be centered on the atonement of Jesus Christ. And how it is applied, that takes wisdom. Next, pastors must give themselves to understanding the roles within the home and the church. We see in the qualifications that no one can serve as an elder unless he is able to oversee and care for and shepherd his own home well. Then I would add that we need to understand the times. It's not just enough to know God's word, but... We need to understand the times in which we live so that we can rightly apply that word. That the word of God is timeless, yes, but it's also timely. And so we must know how and when and what to say. And then finally, this may not be true in every church, but it is here. If someone desires to be a pastor in this church, they must understand the place of the local church. That the local church is God's ordained means of displaying His glory until Christ's return. This is one of the reasons in the fall we're hoping to launch these Waverly seminars. They're going to be open to anybody who wants to come, free to you. All of you, welcome there, these Waverly seminars, however we're going to do them, however often we're going to do them. But primarily one of the main avenues we want to use them for is for raising up and equipping men who are growing in wisdom so that they may serve as gifts to this church as elders and pastors. And this gets at the aspect of our verse of those who spoke the word of God. 
There is a pastoral expectation for delivering God's Word in our lives. This doesn't mean every pastor is gifted to do what I'm doing right now. But some are more gifted to do it in personal relationships over a cup of coffee or around a dinner table or in a discussion or in a Bible study. But the call of the pastor is to give God's people food to feed them with the very Word of God. Then there's an understood dedication to knowing the Word and knowing the people. This is worth remembering in hardship and imitating in devotion. And this gets to the last aspect of care. This is what we mean when we say the word pastor. It's, we get the word pastor from the Greek word that means shepherd. There's a care that's called for in this role. Yes, the church fundamentally relies on and leans upon the atoning work of Christ. But at the same time, the church now also leans into the faithfulness of the pastor to bring Christ's work to their hearts and to their minds. This is why in our public scripture reading this morning from 1 Peter 5, Peter calls the, the elders that he's writing to to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And as if they needed a reason other than Peter saying it, he gives them this gut punch at the end. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And so what does this look like in the life of our church? Well, one, attending regularly that a shepherd must be among the sheep, that a shepherd must be with his people, that a shepherd must be with those in whom he is intending to shepherd. So therefore the pastor prioritizes being with the sheep, and the call here is for you to imitate it. Next, this means discipling selflessly. The pastor prioritizes feeding the sheep, that it is our goal and our work not well, we enjoy having kind of side conversations and, and, and silly conversations and talking about, you know, frivolous things from time to time, sure. But primarily our desire in our conversations with you and our care for you is to disciple you, to help you love Jesus more. And so we feed you with the Word of God. Next, the call for care is a call to, to, to serve consistently. The pastor prioritizes building up the sheep. Now, it is not the expectation of you as the members, praise God, that the pastors of this church do everything. I thank you for that, because I can't, and neither can David, and neither can Sean. But, the pastors in this church, as the pastors of this church, we desire to have bumps and bruises and cuts and sweat on our brow and dirt on our knees, because we're serving. And finally, this means counseling Biblically, the pastor prioritizes guiding the sheep, caring for the sheep, directing them, holding them, not just spiritually, sometimes physically as well. I'm naturally a hugger, but being a pastor just ramps that up. And so the pastor prioritizes guiding the sheep. And so the call here in all of these things, and attending, discipling, serving, counseling, the call here is to imitate it to follow us in it. And putting these together, what, what do we have called for then? As under-shepherds, the pastors are models before the congregation of Christian living. The call for elders isn't a call for more older men or, or businessmen or community leaders or good old boys or, or politicians. It is a call for godly men, for men who love Christ and love Christ's people. And so the church, as you look for future elders, ought to look for model Christians, for men who love their families well. A man who loves his wife like nothing else will love the bride of Christ like nothing else. A man who shepherds and guides his children and doesn't give up on them will shepherd and guide the children of God. 
so our prayer is that our way of living produces a life and that it is a life worth following, worth imitating, worth holding out. This is why we want to put forward men in our church who are godly leaders in their homes, who are godly disciplers among the people. This is the expectation. We don't make people elders. We acknowledge from God the gift of elders. The reason why is because this is a high calling. The reason why is because you will not hear what I say from my lips if you do not see it working itself out in my life. That's what we call a hypocrite. It's just high calling because leaders can only lead you as far as they themselves have gone. Imagine if we're climbing up a mountain, snowy, Mount Everest, and we've got to put the clips in, and we've got to... I can't lead you any further up the mountain than I myself have gone up the mountain. I can't pull you and sling you up there. It's not possible. And so leaders must lead. This is a high calling on holiness because it is helpful and impactful on the holiness of the entire church. But the commands here are not given to me. They're given to you, the church, to consider, to consider so that you might grow yourself in considering the outcome of your pastor's life and what we call you to do from God's word. This is a time for you to check your own life. Are there areas in your life where you need to grow in one of these ways? Are there areas of personal devotion, of, of prayerful wisdom, of caring for one another that you can grow in. Maybe God would use this sermon today to spur you on towards that. But this call and this reality is not only a faith that should be followed and imitated, but the faith that lies at the foundation of the next two commands. Or to say it another way, you shouldn't follow ungodly leaders. And so let's jump then to the point number two, the function of godly authority. Look back at verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So the call to consider and remember and imitate may have felt like, oh yeah, that's good. But now it gets a little bit more, uh, I don't know about this. These are some big commands. What are they here? They're, well, they're straightforward. Obey and submit. With a call to examine and imitate your pastors, the next commands are to follow. And this is what is meant by obedience and submission. The passage then has some assumptions that many of us do not have. The passage comes with some, some truth that many of us have, have kind of washed away in our own lives, swimming in the waters of the culture in which we live. This passage holds out this call to obey and submit. But when we hear those words, often we think of harsh chains that bind, don't we? When we hear the word to obey and submit, we think that we're being locked down, that we're being placed into a cell in which we cannot get out and we no longer have freedom. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're not a follower of Jesus, and, and you're, you're swimming in the culture of anti-authority and pro-choice. Hearing things like obey and submit hurt. They're great. They want, make you want to get up and run away. What does the Bible mean when it uses these words, though? What the Bible means by obey and submit, simply put, is freedom found by entrusting. Freedom found by entrusting. What he's saying here is listen to those who have devoted themselves to God and to you. Follow those who have earnestly sought God's heart on what is best. Go with them. Go alongside them. Allow them to lead you. Well, what might this look like then? We understand that this is authority laid out, but it's not authoritarian. Okay, can I make that distinction for us? Very quickly. There is a difference between authority and being authoritarian. Authority is something that is given by God. Being authoritarian is something of Satan. Because it demands and it belittles 
And it does all the things that, that, that Peter drew out there in 1 Peter 5. It domineers. It does it for selfish gain. It steps on people's shoulders and necks and heads to get ahead. This is not godly authority. This is not what we are called to obey and submit to. So what are we called to obey and submit to? Called to obey, called to obey and submit to pastors whose heart is to lead you to green pastures and fresh waters. But we must remember this is shepherding. This is not being a cowboy. I've made this point before and I'll make it again here. I'm called to be a shepherd. I'm not called to be a cowboy. Cowboys rope and they wrangle and they drag and they jerk and they pull and they scream yeehaw. That's not what shepherds are. Shepherds live among the sheep. Yes, they have a staff. But they live among the sheep. They smell like sheep. They wrestle with the sheep. They love the sheep. And so they walk with the sheep. So obeying and submitting then has two sides, doesn't it? The leader and the follower. As a pastor, I must lead you from Scripture. Not from preference, not from feelings, not from what, what would benefit me the most, but from Scripture. If you're a member of this church, you must follow from trust, not from fear. Not from fear. Oh, Pastor Adam's going to be angry if I don't do exactly what he thinks we should do. No, that's not the way you should follow. Which brings us to something worth asking. Why don't people follow their pastors? Why don't people follow their pastors? Well, in my assessment of it, there's one of two reasons that people don't follow their pastors. And so if you have a hard time following pastors, I'm guessing you probably fall into one of these two categories. So listen up, here it is. Number one... One of the reasons people don't follow their pastors is because they themselves have been harmed and hurt in the past by people, not just pastors, but perhaps parents or teachers or bosses. They've been harmed in the past by people who should have provided loving care and guidance and godly authority. And so some folks have a really hard time, this may be you, have a really hard time trusting and following pastors because you yourself have been hurt by people who should have done a good job in leading and caring for you. If that's you this morning, friend, the pastors of this church aim to walk through that with you. And our aim, is, as weak and feeble as we may be, it would be to do a much, much, much better job. But there is a second category. Another reason people have a hard time following pastors is that they themselves are in some sin or rebellion, and they do not want to be corrected or to relinquish their idols in their life. The second reason people have a hard time following pastors, frankly, simply put in a word, is because they think more highly of themselves than they ought. They're prideful and they believe that they know best for their life and that no one else could ever tell them what God's Word says or what is wise. And so, in the end, these people are in great need, not necessary, necessarily of tenderness and care, though it is offered. But they're in great need of repentance, not to human authorities, but to God, who is their final authority as the chief shepherd over these under-shepherds. And so this is why Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak, and be patient with them all. So whichever category you may fall into this morning, know this, pastors here will be patient. And we see these commands then play out in two ways. The call to obey and submit has a formal aspect and an organic aspect. It has a more corporate aspect and a more individual aspect. So the formal kind of corporate aspect is that the church ought to have men that they can entrust with the vision and direction of the church. So that the elders lead out in, in teaching and in guidance and in decision making. And that the church normally, often, more likely than not, happily follows the elders in those things. 
We see this primarily in, in the members' meetings of the church. So member recommendations, ministry growth, starting a new ministry, or, or matters of church discipline. You'll see the elders lead out in this. And this is helpful because there is a difference. And, and I want to put this clearly. Because this idea of groaning here that's mentioned in Hebrews 13, this is where some of it comes from. When pastors find themselves groaning, it's right here. That there is a difference between questioning authority and asking for clarification. Okay? So, so, so we need to understand the difference. There's a difference between saying, hey, I think you guys are a bunch of morons and, and I don't want to follow you because I don't think you have any idea in what you're doing, versus hey, can you help me get that? What you said, where, where we're going as a church, I don't necessarily understand it. Can you help me get there? Those are two different types of people. There's sheep that bite and sheep that need some help and some guidance. But then there's the organic and individual aspect of the church following and submitting to her pastors. The church ought to have men that they can seek to pray for them, to pray over them to give them guidance and insight and to ask their scripturally informed opinion. And this is what we see in discipling. And this is why, honestly, elders, as elders, we seek to be in your lives. We don't, we're, not, we're not just fond of nagging. And so if, if, you, if you're not here for a couple weeks or, or you don't show up to something you said you were going to be at, more than likely you're going to get a text from us because we want to make sure you're okay, not because we want to make you feel bad for being absent. We want to make sure that you're spiritually doing all right. If we ask you how you're doing and you tell us fine, and then we ask you again how you're doing, it's not because we want to dig into your life just so that we can know. It's because we care. This is a primary way that we keep watch over individual souls. So what exactly is God's Word asking for here? It's an essential part of church membership in the church, it's the happy following and entrusting your spiritual life to the men God has given to be over this church. As a side note, this is one of the reasons that the pastors labor to get to know guests in our church. One of the reasons we want to know as pastors the guests and the people who are visiting our church is because we realize that we are asking something big when we are asking those people to join the church and become members. We're asking them to entrust themselves to us. And how can we ever ask people to entrust themselves to us if they don't know us? And so we spend time getting to know our guests and loving them and having them over and having good conversations with them. But we see here there are two motivations. Let me hit these quickly before we get to our last point. The first one there is the motivation of accountability. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. What does this mean? It means the pastor will have to answer for those who are given to him. It means that those who abuse, those who use, those who manipulate, those who are deceptive will have to give an account for those that they led astray. This is a sobering, sobering motivation. It's given here to motivate towards submission because this is a deep responsibility. It puts pressure, it, the great pressure that it puts on a pastor to serve well the great shepherd to whom I and David and Sean will have to give an account because he is the one that we have received the charge from. It should protect us from laziness, from apathy in our service as elders. We see here there's another motivation and it is the motivation of joy. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The call here is, is the call to be easy sheep to guide. It is the call to faithfully and trusting without biting or charging or running away. The idea of groaning here is the idea of sighing under great, deep distress. It's not groaning from a place of neediness. If it was that type of groaning, it wouldn't be included here because Jesus knows your pastors do a lot of weak groaning. But that's not the type of groaning that's been talked about. It's a groaning from a place of exasperation, 
of frustration. It's groaning we feel as parents when our children backtalk us or refuse to do what we ask. Just a side note, oftentimes resistant children are reared by resistant parents. But there is a joy that's held out here. A joy that is an advantage to the church as a whole. When pastors can lead with joy, when the congregation appreciates their pastors, what happens in the church? What is the advantage that's spoken of here? It is a renewed vigor and zeal to charge the hill and to see the church used for the kingdom of God. Friends, do you understand what living in harmony with your pastors can do? That it beautifies the witness of Jesus Christ. There are other things that beautify that witness as well, but this is the one we're brought to today. It leads to this inevitable outcome when godly men are leading a trusting people. It's what Paul brings up in Ephesians 4. That God has gifted the church with these leaders who equip the saints for the work of ministry so that together they may grow up into Christ who is their head, that they may grow up into maturity. And so how do we get there? How do we get godly men and a trusting people? Well, this is the last point. It's where we'll end today. It is the fount of godly authority. Look back at verse 19, or 18 and 19. You know, these, these kind of verses, they, they often appear at the end of epistles or letters like, like Hebrews here. And oftentimes we read right over them. We, especially if they include names, and there's some here mentioned, but, but we read right over these, and we don't even take time to notice what's happening here. But when you come to these in your own Bible reading, you get to the end of, say, Ephesians or Philippians or, or to the letters to Timothy, and you see Paul here or whoever's writing this. This is another place to point out. We don't know exactly who has written this. We have opinions. The elders disagree about this matter. We'll, we'll let you know that. But... but when we come to these times and we come to these places, we read right over these, we don't acknowledge what's actually going on here. And so here's a good question to ask when you come to these sections of Scripture. is Why does he mention what he mentions here? And how does it relate to the rest of the letter? And this here, the verses 18 and 19, have a real gem held out for us. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, meaning pray for us, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. What do we find here? Well, friends, we find a pastoral heart. And I want you to see it. Number one, the heart of a pastor. Verse 18, we are sure to have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably. The one who is delivering this sermon desires a right standing before God. It should be the heart of every pastor to have a clear conscience that they have acted honorably before the Lord. But it doesn't end there. Notice verse 19. What is the second prayer request that he gives? That I may be restored to you the sooner. Pastors should not just desire to be near to God, but they should desire to be near to God's people. That they would be with them. That they would be restored. That they would be together. But what does this mean for us? It means that the pastor and people alike must constantly run to the fount of godly authority. God himself. He doesn't say, hey, send some good vibes here our way. That I would have a clear conscience. Or, hey, have some good thoughts that we would be restored together. He says, pray. To who? To the one, to the chief shepherd, to the one who has called, to the one who has equipped, and to the one who has held and bound together. Leonard Ravenhill once said, in the church today, elders are normally men of standing, but in the New Testament, they were men of kneeling. And friends, this is what we need. That we would run to the God who has authority and hands it out as he sees fit. And what does this mean for us? It means that in this call to prayer, there's a place for deep encouragement in our fears and phobias. 
When we are struggling as pastors, we should hit our knees. And when we are struggling as members, we should hit our knees. Because God is the fount of all authority. Therefore, He is the one uh, that we should look to alone when we find our need for godly leaders in a godly church. And so I'll ask you this way. Have you prayed for your pastors recently? We need it. I can tell you that. We need it. And have you prayed for your fellow church members recently? Because if you're anything like me, you need it. We need the God who is over all. So in the end, an appeal to godly authority is really just an appeal to follow Jesus. Or to say it another way, the only way pastors can lead well and the church can follow well is by looking to the great shepherd himself. And what do we find in Christ then? We find in Christ a shepherd, a Lord who doesn't lord it over us. We find in him a heart that is tender and loving toward his sheep, but by who no means, by no means leaves them in a place of danger or disaster. He guides, he corrects, and he carries. This shepherding then culminates in his sacrifice for his sheep. As a pastor, I only taste a bit of this sacrificial service. But in Christ, you have, you see, and you truly know fully the one who bore all of our sins, not just in prayer, not just in long-suffering, but in death itself. And so even if you're here this morning and you have been hurt by authorities, this is one that you can submit to and know every single time He will care for you perfectly and rightly. Because we are the church that He purchased. This is what Paul tells the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20 when he's seeking to encourage them and send them back to Ephesus. He says to keep watch over the church that God purchased by His own blood. But elders, friends, will rise and they will fall. And perfect men will fall mightily and will let us down. But even so, there is one who will never let us down and will never suffer defeat. And the call to follow your pastors, the call for us to be holy, there is one whom we keep our eyes upon. Who is he? He is the one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it is his table that we now come to. Let me pray. Father, as we come before you now, God of all authority, we need your guidance. We need your direction. But even more so, God, we need hearts that are tender and trusting. Not finally to the men who serve this church, but finally to you. And so, God, as we prepare to take this bread and this cup in our hands to taste and to drink again this week, God, I pray and I ask, Lord, that we would be reminded of our chief shepherd, the one who oversees everything, who directs and guides all of our days, who's building his church. Give us eyes to see him so that we may trust, we may follow we may be holy as you are holy. We do ask this in his name. Amen.